For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. The unsurpassed, profound, and wondrous dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, I'm very happy to have as our guest teacher this morning, Dale Wright, uh, who's coming to us from Southern California. Uh, Dale uh, has taught uh, at, uh, at Occidental College in Los Angeles for 30 years. Um, he's author of a number of books, um, uh, notably the six perfections, Buddhism and the cultivation of character, also Buddhist enlightenment, uh, Buddhism, what everyone needs to know, um, philosophical meditations on Zen Buddhism. And also he's co-edited with uh, Stephen Hine uh, a number of really uh, very helpful books, including uh, Zen Koan, Zen Classics, Zen Canon, Zen Ritual, and Zen Masters, the last two I contributed chapters to. Um, Dale was uh, here at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, well, not here on Zoom, but here at our temple on Irving Park Road in 2015 and gave a talk on the karma of community, social justice, and uh, awakening. You can find that on our uh, uh, website, ancientdragon.org, on our podcast archives page. Uh, uh, on uh, page 32 of the archives. So um, anyway, uh, Dale is back, and I'm very happy to have him speaking today. And uh, so thank you very much, Dale. Uh, the floor is yours. So... Um, Dale, I think you're muted. There. Dale, I still don't see you, but I'm sure you're here somewhere. <laughs> For a minute you were unmuted. Uh, this is how we know it's Zoom. <laughs> uh, okay, can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Oh, there you are. Um, I'm sorry. For some reason, it keeps going in and out of mute. Um, I'm so now. hopefully. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. All right, so um, hopefully we'll maintain that. So um, I told Taigen that I would talk about um, the Vimalakirti Sutra that some of you may have read, and um, um, probably many of you have not. And uh, just one theme in that sutra, um, the theme of non-duality. <clears throat> so um, unless you correct me on this, I'm going to assume that um, 
Some of you are experienced Buddhists and have read widely in, in Buddhism. Others are new to the practice or study of Buddhism and won't um, know many basic terms. So I will scale down and try to explain as I go um, basic ideas, even basic ideas to Buddhism. So am I right about that? More or less. Yeah. Okay, more or less. <laughs> Which one? More or less? <laughs> Uh, I think a lot of people are familiar uh, with <laughs> most basic okay. terms. There are a few new, new, newer people. Okay, good. Anyway, let me explain, um, first of all, what is the Vimalakirti Sutra, or sometimes called the Vimalakirti Nirdesha Sutra. It's a Mahayana Sutra, uh, written probably in the first century of the Common Era, so 2,000 years old. It is related to a group of sutras um, that you probably chant called the Prajna Paramita Sutras, like the Heart Sutra and the Diamond Sutra are, are members of that class. And the Vimalakirti Sutra fits into that group because its primary theme is emptiness and compassion in the Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva being the one who vows um, to practice towards the awakening of everyone to the entire community. So um, I should tell you at the outset, this is my favorite sutra of all of them. Um, This one just has always grabbed me in profound ways. And um, one of the reasons is that I'm susceptible to good narrative. And um, there's a real storyline in the sutra. So if you've chanted the Heart Sutra, the Diamond Sutra, it's not really a storyline in it so much. There are really great themes. I mean, they're fabulous, but there's just not a story going on. And in this one, there's a real story about a particular Buddhist. So um, Vimalakirti is the name of the lead character. And uh, what's unusual about it is, well, the sutra starts out like all sutras, that the Buddha shows up. In this case, he's in a garden. He's going to give a talk. There are thousands of people collected together to hear the Buddha. And the Buddha gives an inspiring talk, even creates a miracle to to wake people up and get them going. But then chapter two immediately shifts to another character, um, Vimalakirti. From that point on in the book until the end, and it's a a pretty long sutra, um, the lead Dharma teacher is this layman. And in Buddhism at that time, that was really unusual. No, it was unprecedented. Um, Lay people were thought to be, you know, not, yeah, they were Buddhists, but they weren't totally real Buddhists, and they weren't fully enlightened Buddhists. And so Vimalakirti, all the way through this sutra, breaks those molds, right? He he breaks with um, um, precedents that... uh, in, in his mind, are restricting Buddhism. And this is part of the unfolding of Mahayana. This is one of the first Mahayana sutras where the effort of the sutra is to open up to everyone, right? That's what Mahayana means. It means the vehicle that will accept everyone on board and we're all headed somewhere together, whether that's to heaven or hell. Um, we're all in this together. That's that's the basic theme of Mahayana Buddhism, right? So, um, but here we have a layman who becomes the primary teacher. In fact, even um, even in some sense, ridiculing some of the great monks of the um, Buddhist tradition. 
And um, what's fabulous about the Vimala Kirti Sutra is it's full of humor, right? There are jokes and there, it's, just, it's, it, it's hilarious. Sometimes it takes a while to get it because obviously humor that's from 2000 years ago in an entirely different culture, right? It's not, it's not immediately obvious, but it's funny. It's really funny. So Vimala Kirti is a businessman. He's a rich guy. Um, he is involved in politics. Uh, he hangs out with the common people, not just the common people. He spends time with uh, in bars and casinos and brothels. In other words, all the places that were absolutely forbidden uh, to a pious Buddhist prior to this in Buddhism, Vimala Kirti went there. And in other words, for him, Mahayana meant, okay, we're all together. Everybody's in. No, the division between good and evil people isn't, um, isn't clear. And um, he's working with everyone. So I want to just read you to give you a little sense, just a couple lines from the sutra where it's in chapter two, it's describing the Malakirti. And um, so let me get to the right page. So it says, he made his appearance in fields of sports and in casinos, that is where people were betting and gambling. But his aim was always to mature those people who were attracted to games and gambling. He mixed in all crowds. He was respected as foremost of all. In order to be in harmony with people, he associated with the elders, those of the middle ages, middle age, and with the young, yet always spoke in harmony with the Dharma. Uh, he engaged in all sorts of businesses, yet he had no interest in profit. Right? So here's a businessman, totally successful, no interest in profit for himself, but on behalf of everyone. So he spends his money to help the community. To develop children, he visited all the schools. He was honored as the businessman among businessmen because he demonstrated the priority of the Dharma. He was honored as the landlord among landlords. So he had all these buildings that he rented out to people because he renounced the aggressiveness of ownership, right? Where the aggressiveness of ownership, you've all had landlords, I'm sure, at some point in your life, who were aggressive in their ownership, right? Who were there to exploit and took advantage of their tenants um, for their own profit. He was honored as the warrior among warriors because he cultivated endurance, determination, and fortitude. He was honored as the aristocrat among aristocrats because he suppressed pride, vanity, and arrogance. He was compatible with ordinary people because he appreciated the excellence of ordinary merits. So in other words, he appreciated excellence as it emerged in um, the carpenter, in cooks, in people who did all kinds of, of work in the community, everybody's commit, uh, contributing to the whole. And Vimalakirti is not arrogant in his aristocracy, but helping and supporting everyone. Okay, so that's um, chapter two is really uh, um, brilliant in the sutra because it describes this unprecedented kind of Buddhist as a layman. And throughout the sutra, some of the monks um, really, in some sense, resent that this layman is so good at the Dharma. Right? And that's part of the humor of the book. Anyway, the, the theme 
uh, one of the themes, there's a number of them. Uh, one of the themes is non-duality, um, which I've already alluded to, right? Non-duality basically means in Mahayana Buddhism that everything is ultimately connected in some way, right? Everything's intertwined. So it's not the same as um, monism or all is one, where everything's one thing, everything's the same. Things are as different as they could possibly be, right? The difference between awakening um, to compassion and wisdom and generosity and being hate-filled and cruel and violent is enormous. And those differences still stand. But non-duality means there's a connection between those, that the compassionate person is reaching out to those who are full of hatred, cruelty, and violence. And they all come from the same genetic roots. They're all part of the same society, right? They're, they all have to be accepted, included in one way or another, and worked with. So rather than rejecting, rejecting the bad people, um, it includes the bad people as part of us and um, commits to working with them to make their lives less miserable. So, um, so Vimalakirti's non-duality had a lot to do with a sense of community, but there are a number of other dimensions that go with that too. The theme of non-duality in Mahayana Buddhism is connected to a teaching from Buddhism that you, I'm sure, have run across called Dependent Arising, or Titya Samutpada in the Sanskrit, um, where Dependent Arising means everything that arises, everything that comes to be something at all, does so dependent on other things. Nothing is what it is on its own. Nothing stands by itself, ultimately. We're all influenced. We're all grounded in other things and other people. The air we breathe comes from outside of us. The food we eat comes from outside of us, from farmers and from plants, um, from truckers and from grocers, and on and on. That, that, um, that interconnectedness between very different things is what non-duality means. So it's not the stereotypical everything's the same or everything's one, um, but a much richer, more complex teaching. The, the idea of dependent arising is also fundamental to the Buddhist concept of no self, on Atman, um, which I'm sure you've read or heard about. Um, the idea that down beneath all of us, each of us, there's no immutable soul, right? There's no unchanging part. There's no core that is always the same and is never influenced or affected by things outside of itself, okay? So, so no self and dependent arising are, are two basic Buddhist teachings that are held together closely and they're part of Vimalakirti's non-duality. So, um, so bodhisattvas in the Vimalakirti Sutra, and Vimalakirti is just one of them. There's a Manjushri, the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, we probably chant about as well, and a number of others. Um, they're all committed to two primary values, right? And you know, it's, it's wisdom and compassion, where wisdom is the capacity to see how 
all of reality is always changing, always in motion, never fixed, never static, and how every part of reality is interconnected with every other part. Everything arises dependent on other things. Everything is what it is, not on its own, but in through its being tied to other things and other people. Okay, so wisdom and then compassion is basically the same teaching, just it's, in this case, it's applied to the relationship that as bodhisattvas, we strive to have towards other human beings or all sentient beings, right? All conscious beings, or in the Vimalakirti Sutra, the translation uh, that comes from Robert Thurman, which is brilliant. Um, it's all living beings, right? compassion for all living beings, plants included. Right? Um, okay, so Vimalakirti says, among other things, that I vow to serve as a bridge and a ladder for all people, right? A bridge to cross over into another form of life, to cross over from delusion and greed and hatred into openness and awakening. Um, So, and a ladder to ascend to higher levels of consciousness, right? He serves as that ladder. He will devote his life to being a ladder that we can climb on and we do, and millions of people have used the sutra as a ladder to ascend to a more open, awake, enlightened state of being. Anyway, that's his commitment. That's his bodhisattva vow. Um, he says he wants to be a benefactor to all living beings. Now, the vow, the bodhisattva vow, you'll see in many forms, but I think the most basic form of the vow is that you commit to awakening, not just for yourself, although that's why we all get into this in the first place, because we're all selfish beings, but you commit to awakening for everyone. You commit to a life that will do something to those around you. Those around us uh, can be awakened just by sheer um, exposure to generosity and kindness, and openness, acceptance, and tolerance, and all of those things, if you practice them, um, you create that opportunity for other people to do that as well. Just like if you practice hatred and cruelty, um, you you will have, in a sense, um, created the conditions for other people to adopt that too, right? Because the way people respond to hatred and cruelty is often with more hatred, right? So um, Vimalakirti takes this undoable vow. I mean, how could you possibly do that? Um, I can't. I'm sure he couldn't. But he takes this vow as his ideal, right? That's what he will work towards his entire life. From the moment he takes the vow, the Bodhisattva vow, to the end of his life, um, that's what he's all about. So he's a businessman. Why is he in business? Well, to employ people in humane circumstances, to get to make money that can be used on behalf of the community um, as, as a whole community. Um, I said he's a landlord um, who has renounced the aggressiveness of ownership in order to 
operate his properties, his apartment buildings, whatever he's got, 2,000 years ago, um, on behalf of those who dwell there, um, not on his own behalf. So that's his commitment. He dedicates himself to the health of the community and to all individuals in, um, within it. Um, so it, there's one chapter. Um, it's the most famous chapter in the Vimalakirti Sutra um, called the Dharma Door of Non-Duality. That is Dharma Door, meaning the, the entrance into Dharma that gets you to the point of being able to live in a non-dual way. So what would that be like? That would be to live as though um, my life isn't just about me. To live as though what I do is for others as well as for myself. I mean, I'm not excluded from that. Obviously, I have to do all kinds of things on behalf of myself, but with an eye under the Bodhisattva vow, to commit to having everything I do for myself to also be towards the enlightenment of everyone. <clears throat> so Bhimala Kirti says, the true understanding of self is to recognize the permeability of the self, right? The fact that we're not just isolated creatures, right? If you go out of your home today and you meet somebody who's cruel and violent, it affects you. Um, even if you just see them coming towards you and they don't even speak to you, it affects you for an hour, the rest of the day. Um, if somebody is generous to you and kind to you, that affects you, right? We are permeable in all senses, you know. Um, all the beers you had last night, you are permeable to that influence. Um, if you um, eat food that upsets you, um, that influence coming in from the outside world is, is doing something to you, right? So a true understanding of self, Vimala Kirti says, um, understands the, the non-duality, the connectedness, the permeability of the self. Um, so that he, what he calls delusion is understanding ourselves in isolation from our surroundings, from our environment, from our community, from our family, as beings on to ourselves, right, in and of ourselves. He calls that a shallow self-understanding based on the habits of I and mine, right? The habits of I and mine, it's a great phrase. We all have them. Um, I have a habit of um, featuring myself and of favoring myself and protecting what's mine and um, being less than generous about what's mine because it's mine, right? Those are simply habits and habits can be overcome, right? They can be, um, they can be undermined. They can be changed. You can develop good habits, right? You can develop habits of generosity. The more you act in a generous way, the more you set up the neural pathways in your brain that make that a possibility, right? Make that a, even a default option when you're around other people. So um, what's great about the Vimalakirti Sutra is that the teaching of no self 
isn't treated as a doctrine, right? Um, it's not like there is no self and you've got to memorize that. No, it's all about learning unselving. It's all about learning to let go of the habits of I and mine gradually, slowly, getting to the point where your openness to others and your capacity for generosity are evolving, right? They are developing. And all of this is slow, and that's why practice is incremental, right? If you're new to Buddhism, you know, don't expect miraculous turns. There may be some little ones, breakthroughs, sudden awakenings, but the whole thing is a slow, disciplined process of self-change, right? Where you, you get to the point where you have control over yourself, self-rule. You're able, when you decide you're going to do something, you're more and more able to do that, right? Self-knowledge, more and more you understand the form that your habits of I and mine take, right? We all have different habits. We all have different ways of being selves and selfish. Um, but self-knowledge enables us to see, in particular, who am I? What did I pick up from my parents? What have I developed just out of habitual repetition of behavior over and over, doing it again and again, um, that has formed me into the particular kind of being I am? And how do I want to change this? Self-change, self-transformation. Um, if you have self-knowledge and you have an ideal, the Bodhisattva ideal, you can recognize, okay, here I am here. Here's where I'd like to be. Um, and to devise plans of incremental meditative movement towards those changes and towards, towards the ideal that you've staked out for yourself. So the, the no self idea, it doesn't matter where you say there's a self or there's not a self. What matters is a form of practice that opens us to others and to reality and wakes us up to what's really going on around us. So anyway, this great chapter in, oh, by the way, I'm going to save time at the end for questions. So please note any questions you've got and we'll have a conversation. I'll stop pretty soon and we'll talk. Um, the chapter called the Dharma door of non-duality um, is fabulous because Vimalakirti is hosting a Dharma event. They all come to his house. Actually, there's thousands of people um, around his house and in his patio. And, um, and um, he challenges the greatest bodhisattvas to um, each one take a turn to say, what is the Dharma door of non-duality? How do we enter into selfless, generous non-duality in my own character? How do I do that? And each bodhisattva takes a turn. And one by one they go through and they're all brilliant. They're all wonderful. Um, and um, so I want to go through a few of those and then tell you how the chapter ends. It ends in a famous way that um, the Zen tradition has loved. Um, but one... Um, the, the first set of people talk about the um, non-duality of oneself, right? And, that, and that's what I've just been talking about, the bodhisattva vow to commit to opening to others, right? Um, 
Then a group of bodhisattvas talk about the duality, the separation that is typical in our minds between purity and impurity, um, or between the good people and the bad people, um, good influences and bad influence. Remember, um, Vimalakirti is a model for this non-duality because he goes to bars and casinos and brothels where good Buddhists up to that point would have been, you know, no way they would go there. You wouldn't do that. You want to only expose yourself to good influences, which in certain circumstances, that's what you want to do. But the more you're able to reach out to others, the more you have the capacity to do that, um, the more as a bodhisattva, you want to do that. So, um, a, a line comes up in the sutra over and over and again. It is that only those who are guilty of the five deadly sins can commit to the bodhicitta, whatever, the thought of enlightenment, and awaken to the great awakening, right? Only us, only we sinners can do that, right? Anybody who thinks they're so pure um, and who commits only to being in the pure places can't awaken, you know, that dualism prevents opening up. It prevents enlightenment. Okay. So Bhimalakirti does all these un-Buddhist like things. He lives in an inclusive social world. Um, The chapter just two chapters before the non-duality is a chapter called the goddess, um, which is a fabulous chapter about the non-duality of gender, and where a a goddess incarnate as a woman lectures Shariputra, one of the most enlightened Theravada monks, which is being chastised in the sutra. And she shows him all of the delusion, all of the, um, um, the duality, the separation of purity and impurity that is harming his practice, right? But she, at one point, she, um, um, he says, well, you know, really, if you're so smart, why are you a woman? And she just, of course, doesn't put up with that. And um, she says, you know, all my life I've been striving to see what the fixed static essence of being a man or a woman is, and I just can't find any. She's saying, Gender is open, right? Gender is open to different ways of looking at it. Gender is open to transformation. It will be different in different times and places and different cultures. And so she gives this lecture on what's called the emptiness of gender, right? Emptiness meaning um, it's not fixed. It's not static. It's impermanent. It arises dependent on circumstances. And so that's um, another form of, um, duality between the purity of the enlightened men and the, the women. And there's Vimalakirti off in brothels uh, working with the prostitutes. At one point, um, there's a transgender moment that's quite brilliant. She turns Shariputra into a woman and herself into a man and says, okay, Shariputra, now, you know, what? Why are you a woman? Is, is it so terrible to be a woman? And he says, well, he's all confused. He can't speak. And no, you know, I'm wrong. Okay, you're right. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's wonderful. Um, 
it's a hilarious chapter. Um, anyway, that's that's one of the forms of non-duality. So gender dualism is also on the way out. My, obviously, um, Buddhism is ensconced in all these deeply patriarchal cultures, and all of that's on the table now, right? All of that's open. Buddhism is is working this huge change of gender identity politics that is um, is quite wonderful. Okay, so um, so the difference between purity and pure, impurity is undermined, right? And all the kinds of things that go with that. So nothing surely good and surely evil. Everything's mixed. Everything is tangled up together. We're all part of one society. Okay, now there's um, there's a missing part in this chapter when I looked at it um, that I found curious and, um, and I thought and thought and thought about it. That is the non-duality of the biosphere that is so basic for us now that we're learning so much about. Right. So all biologists, all scientists are now non-dualist, right? The world is one, right? The world is this one entangled, complex thing. Um, the biosphere, you learn through evolutionary biology, is this unfolding living organism where all living beings are interconnected, right? We're interconnected through what we eat and through our, our relationship to the breathable atmosphere and so on. Um, so it's interesting that the Nimalakirti the, Sutra, none of the bodhisattvas address that at all. It's like it wasn't a problem for them. So you only address things that are really a problem. And it didn't talk about it. But for us, it's fundamental, right? The non-duality between my own personal environmental habits and the environment as a whole is that they're interconnected. I have an influence on the greater environmental world. You do too. We all do together collectively. When we vote, those are issues that have a, a huge impact. So the non-duality between the all elements in the biosphere and beyond that, all elements of reality is uh, is a fundamental theme in our time. And we are learning things. Uh, scientists all over the world are learning things that Buddhists need to learn more and more and more about. Um, there's uh, a great piece on the duality between us and them that um, is surprising because the, the Vimalakirti Sutra is all about the duality, be, well, not all about, but it comes up over and over between we Mahayana Buddhists and the Theravada Buddhists, the Hinayana Buddhists. In other words, Mahayana is a brand new thing. And what they're trying to do is convince people that the Bodhisattva vow is if you think about Buddhist teachings in a really fundamental sense, you've got to get to that vow and you have to commit to enlightenment for all, not just for yourself. And so that, that difference runs all the way through the sutra because that is promoting a certain new kind of Buddhism, Mahayana. But one of the Bodhisattvas comes on and undercuts that duality. He says that the distinction between Hinayana and Mahayana is arises dependent on circumstances, right? It's empty of its own being. It's not fixed. It's not set. It's not 
something that is ongoing. So that um, this bodhisattva is able to see that the theme of the superiority of the Mahayana is a relative theme, right? All of these things have to be taken in context in an ongoing way. Okay, I just signed that said my internet connection is unstable, so you let me know if it really unstables on you. Okay, um, so let me get to the end. Finally, um, Manjushri, the Bodhisattva Wisdom, makes the last of 32 statements about non-duality. And then he turns back to his host, Vimalakirti. He says, okay, Vimalakirti, you put this challenge to us. What do you think? Okay. So Vimalakirti doesn't say a word, sits there in deep meditation with this big shit-eating grin on his face um, in deep silence and won't say a thing. So that for him, non-duality is that deep silence of meditation. That when you're really doing zazen, you're there. Um, in, in, um, you're there and um, you can maintain that state when you come out of there and back into the world. But, but that just creates another duality. And Zen Buddhists discovered later. Um, and I think even the author of the Vimalakirti Sutra knew it, um, between silence and speaking. Like, okay, language is bad, okay? The Dharma is all about language, um, and it's all about silence, right? Those are the two poles of Buddhist practice, right? To conceptualize in language the teachings, to understand them, and to lay out a plan for your own practice as a bodhisattva, as a Zen Buddhist, um, and to have that conceptually articulated in your mind, right? What is your practice going to be? Then to critique that, to criticize it, to make it grow, evolve. All that takes language and concepts and communication that we always do in the Zendo. All of that takes language. So what happens in the sutra is that as soon as it's clear that Vimalakirti is not going to say one word, um, Manjushri says, excellent, excellent, noble sir. Um, you've just demonstrated the non-duality of deep silence. But there he is speaking. He interrupts Vimalakirti's silence in order to point out to all the visitors there that silence is good. And that's, and that's a linguistic concept. And then um, after Manjushri um, shuts up, um, then the, the author comes back on and he says, um, when, pe- when 5,000 people experienced awakening, when um, Vimalakirti sat there in silence and Manjushri pointed out how great it was. So, so more language, more language. And then the, the book doesn't end there. I think it sh- I wish it had ended there. But it goes on. There's more chapters. There's good stuff. But it kind of drones on a bit. Um, and then there's an epilogue that's, that's quite wonderful in the end. But um, in any case, um, Vimalakirti's silence is meant to communicate the kind of equanimity, the kind of balance, composure that you get through the practice of zazen um, into the dharma that's swirling through your mind, hopefully, um, in order to keep it steady and calm with composure. Um, my 
first Dharma teacher was Maizumi Roshi. Um, and uh, he would always say in this deep um, Japanese, Hara, um, Zen master, deep voice. Um, and that means core, right? Get down into your core. Be solid in your zazen, right? Um, have that core to keep your balance um, and to be to be the point of strength that allows you to reach out and to be open and to expose yourself to the world, to not be afraid of the world. Okay, like the Malakirti, I, uh, I vow to shut up and let you speak for a while. So if anyone has questions, and we can talk for a while or whatever. So... Thank you very much, Dale. Uh, I will call on people. If anyone has comments, questions, responses, for the people I can see, you can just raise your hand. But also, if you go to the bottom, uh, there's a participant window, and you can go there, and at the bottom, it says raise hand. So if you want to raise your hand in the participant window, I can call on you. So I'll start with Ashley. Do you have a question or comment, Ashley? Thank you, Dale. Um, so, you know, I'm just kind of thinking a little bit. Um, so I guess my, and this could like have a really obvious answer to it, but I still want to ask anyway. Please, um, yeah. So it's been said, it's been said that the next Buddha may be the Sangha, right? And so I guess my question is, what do you think the relationship or what will the influence be on non-duality with that next Buddha or the, or the inverse as well. Um, Um, Yeah. yeah, So just like to get your thoughts on that. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. That's great. Actually. That's really um, fabulous. I love that thought. Was that Thich Nhat Hanh who first said that? I don't know, but um, yeah, I think if it turns out to be true, um, that is all the better, right? That, That spreads the, um, the responsibility and that spreads the influence that the Sangha can have. And it makes it, um, it, it really um, moves it out into the community. Now there, there will always be, of course, uh, members of the Sangha who are more inspirational, who are uh, more able to articulate the Dharma or whose equanimity is greater or whose generosity is greater or whose compassion is greater and, you know, so there will always be differences. There will never be the case. Everybody's just the same. Let's hope that's true anyway. Um, but um, that that whole groups, and I think that's happening now. I really see it happening now. And your song is, is an example of that, where um, everyone is joining together and guru worship is, you know, passing into the background. Um and I think Taigen will be the first to say that's a good thing, <laughs> right? It's it's important that we um, spread the responsibility, and what that also means is that awakening it becomes a widespread phenomenon. So I think that's exactly what ought to happen, and and I hope your song is more and more a part of that. So thank you, Ashley. Thank you. Other. Comments, questions, responses, please feel free. You can raise your hand or uh, raise your hand on the participant window. 
uh, David Ray. So much for that talk. That, that's really wonderful. Uh, that sutra is on my on my list of, of books that I want to get around to reading. Uh, and I think I just got promoted. Uh, thank you so much. And I'm, it's, I guess this is a more academic type question, but I'm, I'm curious about whether we know anything about the composition and, and context of, of such a work. I mean, it's, you know, it, from a Western perspective, it sounds like something that almost comes like out of a, out of a salon, like it, like it represents a, a group of, of, of people elaborating it together. Um, I know nothing about whether Vimala Kirti is believed to be historical, but I'm curious if we know anything about how we have this and, and, and these other amazing sutras. Yeah, no, great question. Um, and the answer is, nope, we don't know much, <laughs> um, which is true of all sutras, right? We don't know who the author was. We don't know if it was a collective effort. Um, we suspect that often they were. Some of these sutras, like the, um, uh, well, some sutras are just hugely long and, and nobody could write the whole thing in their entire life. But the Vimala Kirti in the, um, the Robert Thurman translation, which is the one I recommend, is you know, just a little yes. pages. Um, yeah. Um, and um, um, it was probably written in Sanskrit. And in fact, this, this, we didn't have a Sanskrit sutra all these years, all these centuries. Uh, there were Chinese translations, a number of them, Tibetan translations, a number of those. And those circulated throughout. And then just in 1999, so the end of the last millennium, uh, a Sanskrit copy of the sutra was discovered in the Potala Palace in Tibet. So now there's that too, and that's now just been translated. So, um, so there are all these versions. The Chinese were the most influential, one by Kumarajiva, and you can get that translation. It's a very good translation out of Kumarajiva. But um, for sheer readability, I like the um, Thurman Best, which is out of the Tibetan. Um, so what, what we know, well, um, sutras were typically written by men, although you got this feminist chapter in right in the middle. What's going on there? Um, who knows? Um, um, it was probably, we don't even know its date. So let's put it um, um, right around the time Jesus was um, living and uh, the intertestamental period um, in the West world, um, the Roman Empire. Um, but precisely, we don't know. Um, precisely where, we don't know. <laughs> anyway, I recommend it. Uh, and I should warn you too, David, and the rest of you. Um, it's not easy to read, you know. Um, um, and I, I've, I've just finished writing, I haven't published it yet, uh, a book on the Vimala Kirti Sutra. Um, it's called uh, Living Skillfully, because upaya, or skillful means, is the primary theme. Um, Buddhist philosophy of life from the Vimala Kirti Sutra. And what I've tried to do, because I've taught the sutra many, many times, um, what I've tried to do is to um, make it understandable in the same way that I've tried to do in teaching it. Uh, and w when you read it, you'll find, oh, it's, it's, it's hard because you're back in a cultural world of 
India 2000 years ago. So there are those difficulties. Same thing with the Heart Sutra and Diamond Sutra. I and mean, some of you, when you heard that you chanted, first time you chanted, you're like, what am I chanting? This is nonsense. <laughs> right? So some of that happens. But anyway, I love it. I hope you'll love it. Check it out. I'll just add, um, it's a very, very entertaining sutra. Um, really recommend it. And the Thurman translation is really wonderful, and it has wonderful indexes also. Uh, just one story about that. Uh, it was very important in China, not so much in India or Tibet, but the Chinese people took it literally, and Chinese culture was very interested in history. India wasn't so much. So the Chinese emperor sent an envoy to go and look for him, uh, the Malakirti's room where all this happened. And they got to they got to the city of Vaishali where Vimalakirti was supposed to live, and the Indians said, "Well, well, I don't know." They, they sent him to some 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 site where, <laughs> and uh, they measured it, and it was ten foot square. Um, you know, the Indians were laughing at the Chinese envoy, and uh, so they the Chinese envoy went back to China, and uh, they said they described the, the place where Vimalakirti was supposed to have lived, which was ten foot square. So that's the that that uh, that was the name that became the name for the abbot's uh, hut, the hojo in Japanese. Uh, so uh, abbot's halls are and the abbots are referred to as hojo based on this supposed Dumalakirti uh, house. Anyway, um, ten by ten, yeah, pretty tiny space. <laughs> when in fact, Sutra says you know he had a mansion. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, it, it probably it's not historical. It's, it's a wonderful story. Oh yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I meant to say, too, it's not known whether there ever was somebody named Vimalakirti or not. Probably not. He doesn't appear in other sutras. Maybe there's one mention of him in a long list of names in one other sutra. Anyway, uh, we have a number of, of, of uh, hands up, so uh, yeah. I'll start with Juan Pablo. Juan Pablo. Uh, you're Hi, can you hear me? Yes. yes, go ahead, Juan Pablo. Okay, Dale, thank you very much. I have three questions okay and one is about uh, how will you explain or how do you see the relationship between non-duality and making distinctions because i think distinctions making distinctions are vital yeah. for social life for normal yeah. lives so that's the first one the second one i think it's a big question uh, how do you see the relationship or what can you say about Non-duality, emptiness, and Buddha nature, are, are they the same? Are they focusing on different things, or how do you see it? And uh, a third question is, I, 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 I was reading some time ago the Shogun, so and I found that Dogen is very critical about Bimalakirti. Can yeah. you say something about that? Okay, yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, let me start with that one, since that's fresh on... on everyone's mind um, that, yeah, there are places where Dogen's critical of Vimalakirti and it's kind of curious. Um, but I think the reason he's critical of Vimalakirti is um, that um, Rinzai Buddhists at that time were taking Vimalakirti very literally, like, like uh, any talk is non-Zen, right? If you're talking, that's, you're, that's just, you know, that, that's not really Zen. And that, that was 
a kind of literalism that Dogen saw through so easily. I mean, Dogen was a literary master, he was a poet. His articulation of the Dharma was brilliant. And so any literal um, community based on just not ever speaking um, isn't going to be much of a community because there's no communication going on there. So he um, he takes that out in Vimalakirti, but remember he's speaking to other Japanese people, and it's the the Rinzai literalists who are going around talking about that you know just you know, language is so problematic and language is always um, the the worst of dualism and so on. So um, so. I don't think it's in every place, and I'm about to undertake a study of that. Um, but um, uh, Dogen's critique of Vimalakirti, I think, is a critique of literalism in Zen, which is always a problem, always a problem in every tradition. Okay, that's one. Um, your first question was about um, non-duality and the necessity of making distinctions, right? And we all know that if you don't make distinctions, you're in trouble, right? You've got two um, bowls of cereal in front of you. One uh, is full of poison and the other's not. You'd better distinguish between those two, right? Um, the distinctions are fundamental to life, right? You have to know the difference between. You have to know the difference between somebody who needs your help and somebody who doesn't. You have to know the difference between different kinds of suffering that you are undergoing. Um, so that non-duality is not an end of thinking and not an end of language. And that's why in Buddhism it's called not monism, not oneism, but non-duality. In other words, not separation, that, um, that distinctions are announced differences, but differences are never absolute. Nothing is, nothing is ultimate and absolute. Um, everything is connected. Everything is tied together. So um, um, it's hard to learn that growing up as children because we learn a distinction and we think it's absolute. And then we learn, well, okay, your, your mom tells you this is an apple. It's round and red. And you go to the store and you see these green things and these yellow things. Those can be apples. It's not round and red. Um, so um, nuance, distinction is fundamental. Third question um, relationship between non-duality and emptiness. I don't know how much many of you have studied emptiness, but emptiness is just the idea coming from dependent arising that things are interconnected, right? Everything is based upon other things. Everything is changing in accordance with other things. And, uh, and that's what non-duality means, right? Things are connected. You cannot not be influenced by things, right? You will be influenced by the world around you. You will be influenced by the food you eat, the air you breathe, the water you drink, the, what people say, the way people act, the way people vote, the way people do everything. All of that is coming into you. You are non-dual. You are empty in that sense. You are not a static set being, right? Okay, so is that the Buddha nature? Yes, the Buddha nature is um, the nature of reality, right? The Buddha sees the true nature of all things, which is that everything's non-dual, everything's interconnected, everything's changing together and intertwined. And, um, and that Buddha nature is what you discover within yourself, getting to that recognition 
is the ground of awakening, right? The more you see that in different nuanced ways, the more your mind opens and you see who you are and what's going on around you and how you connect to the world around So those three things are, I don't want to say the same, right? We can distinguish between them, but they're so closely tied together that uh, understanding one requires the understanding of the other. Thank you. Three good questions. Thank you, Dale. Um, so we have a few hands up. Uh, next is Douglas. Thank you, and thank you for your talk, Dale. I, I really appreciated it. I wanted to ask you about the sutra's understanding of the relationship between wisdom and compassion, and whether, for example, um, compassion arises out of wisdom and is really an, an expression of wisdom, or are they two interdependent aspects of the same awakened mind? And I think that would have significance for the way we practice Buddhism. If you, is compassion something that you know we develop after we work on waking up in some way, and uh, or is our waking up dependent on our expression and practice of compassion at the same time? Okay, thanks, Douglas. That's a great question, and I I can't say it any better than you said it in your second version that these are two interdependent aspects of awakening, right, that they go together. However, let me let me put it this way, that um, some people have a, a greater um, inclination towards or capacity for or background in one or the other, right? So that you may know some people who are, I don't know, there's just something about their character and their upbringing that makes them generous and compassionate. And for them to feel the suffering of other people and to feel the joy of other isn't so difficult. They don't have to learn that. Um, And for them, that compassion then becomes the means of access to wisdom, right? That the more they work on and uh, allow their compassion to evolve, the wiser they become. Other people um, are more, they're, they're, grounded in a sense of the change in the interconnection of the world. And the more they see that and develop it, the more it gives rise to a sense of compassion. And if you see how you are related to those around you inexplicably in just in so many different ways, you will more and more have compassion for them just naturally and automatically. So although um, they're the two wings of the bird, as it said, right, with only one wing, it's hard to fly. Um, but with two or, two wings, you can soar. Um, but one can be stronger than the other initially, innately. And um, at least that's my sense of things. And nothing in the sutra says that. But Vimalakirti is himself an example of the development of both of these aspects Although if I had to guess, I'd say Vimalakirti is stronger on the wisdom part. His compassion is great, but it's so highly conceptualized. Um, I mean, he's, he understands it deeply. But when he's ridiculing some of the monks, he's a little harsh sometimes. Um, right? But remember, that's the author of the sutra, who's probably a monk um, himself, um, 
um, ridiculing the other monks for being so arrogant about the difference between themselves and the laity of the ordinary people. Um, anyway, um, that's, if, if anything, that's Vimala Kirti's stream. So anyway, thank you, Douglas. That's, thank you. That's thank really you. Good. Great response. Uh, we have a couple. So uh, Eve and then Paul. Eve, your, your turn. Uh, you're muted, Eve. So this may be like a nervy question, but I was just wondering, and you're talking about duality. So, like, why do you have all those mirrors on the wall? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great. <laughs> um, although I'm going to have to stretch to connect that to the Dharma, but I can do it. <laughs> you could. Okay. It's, I'm in my living room, um, and it's a room that is... Uh, on the other side, opposite of the mirrors, um, it's open to the world, and I have a great view out over the city of Los Angeles and Eagle Rock, which is the part of LA I live in. And but this corner that I'm in right now is dark. Right? There's no windows. You can see a little inkling of one over there. Um, but um, I, um, my wife, uh, had a couple of old antique metal frame mirrors. And I thought, okay, we had those on that wall. I said, you know, that stands up so the, the light comes in out of the side and illuminates, enlightens this side. And so I said, okay, I'm going to cover this whole wall in antique metal frame mirrors. So I spent more time than anybody saw ought to have on eBay um, finding antique metal frame mirrors. But anyway, there it is. <laughs> All in the service of illumination, right? Awakening. <laughs> Very enlightening. <laughs> but but all different. That's you know what I thought was. Thank you, thank you, Eve. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, Paul Disco, please. Uh, thank you very much for that talk. I I thought it. Um, I learned I learned something. It was quite wonderful. I I thought the mirrors were you were trying to emulate. Vimala Curti's 10 cubit foot square room that included 10,000 people in, his, in the audience. So exactly. making the room larger. That's better than I could have done. <laughs> anyway, um, my experience over the years in American Buddhism has been that Vimala Curti is used as an argument between lay practice and monastic practice. And it's sort of used as a club to beat up people that are, are into monastic practice. And... Um, what is what is your feeling about 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 Buddhism in America and the importance of monastic practice as opposed to lay practice? Okay, good question. Um, I think there have been times when you're right; it has been used as sort of a, a hammer to um, um, uh, knock the monastic people uh, down, um, and that's what it was meant to do in the first place. I mean, clearly, but. Remember, there's almost no chance that it wasn't a monk writing this. So it's an internal critique uh, um, in, in the monastery. Um, so, but my, my view of um, the monastic practice uh, is that if it hadn't been for that, um, there, there wouldn't be any Buddhism um, right now. Um, it's essential. It has been essential. It's generated this brilliant ongoing thing. Um, and I think it will be required because most of us have other jobs, right? So we're not, you know, we do the Dharma, but 
it it's not our entire focus. So we have to be elsewhere. We have children. We have jobs. Um, and um, for to have monastic guidance, monks and nuns who can focus on helping us and who can um, make this possible for us, um, that's that's essential. Now, as as a sangha um, with its own leadership, and we may get to the point where uh, we can do it on our own without anybody committing to it. But it's also um, a kind of commitment that is inspiring and inspired. And some people cut out for it, right? It just works for them. So in the, in the interest of diversity and having Buddhism be as broad and as all-inclusive as possible, I think um, monasticism has a future. Thank you. Um, that's something, of course, that is highly debatable, and any of you can take that on that you'd like. So um, we still have a little bit of time. If anyone else has any comments, questions, responses, please um, uh, feel free. Otherwise, we can do our closing chant, but uh, if there are any last responses... Please raise your hand or uh, thank you for your thanks, Anastasia. Anybody else? Oh, yes, Randy Hester, please. Hi, thanks for your talk. Uh, so the name of your book that's coming out, it's it's Living Skillfully. Yes. Um, what, when will it be out? Uh, well, I don't know. It hasn't even been accepted for publication yet. But I sent <laughs> it to the I sent it to publisher um, two and a half months ago, and I'm starting to get um, – slightly irritated in, in keeping my bodhisattva patience. But um, uh-huh. as Tygen knows, that's typical and, you know, it takes time. But um, uh-huh. it would, it would if things go as I expect them to go, it'll be out uh, this time next year. So it, it'll take a while. Dale, oh, looking... yeah. go ahead, Randy. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you very much. I'm looking forward. And Dale, let's, I'll, I'll email you. Maybe I can help with that. Getting it published. Yeah. Other questions, comments, responses? Um, any last uh, last responses or thoughts? And thank you very much, Dale. Jason. Uh, Dale, thank you so much for that uh, wonderful talk. Um, it's just a slight bit of a comment. My first teacher was Father uh, Robert Kennedy, who studied with Maizumi as well. And when you said Hara, but you just immediately transported me to studying with him and all the times that he quoted Maizumi. So your uh, impersonation was either impeccable or you guys had the same exact experience. I don't know. But thank you for that. Thank you. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah, I, I, I have many memories Azumi Roshi, but uh, and others and masters too. But um, but that that one phrase it's it's helped me. I mean, to okay, you know, and there's huge hateful debate going on. You know, people are angry at each other. Okay, you got to get a center, get some composure to deal skillfully with that. Um, Eric had a question. Tigan, I don't know if you noticed that. Uh, um, Eric, go ahead. I just had a question. You talked about what about Lay, Layman Pang? What what was his time frame? Ah, Layman Pang. Yeah. So, um, what um, ninth century in China? 
okay. uh, 10th century. Um, Layman Pang was thought to be the Vima Lakirti of China because he was a businessman, he was a landowner, he was rich, and he was super enlightened. And the, the sayings of Layman Pang are just wonderful. Uh, there's a couple translations of them, and um, uh, Taigen, I'm sure, knows these well. Um, they're, they're great Zen phrases. And so I can see why he was thought to be the reincarnation, the rebirth of Vimalakirti in China, because he lived the life of Vimalakirti, uh, being the, 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 the citizen, you know, the you know, really highly respected citizen who is also just really Zen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Just to add to that, Layman Pang's daughter uh, was also a great bodhisattva who actually won up them in numbers of stories. And uh, one of the 33 forms of the bodhisattva, Kanmon, is named after her. So uh, uh, anyway, just to, as, a, as an echo of the Malakirti's goddess. <laughs> so so um, unless there's a last comment or question or response, I don't see anybody. Uh, Maybe that's maybe that's a time to uh, stop formally. We'll have a closing chant. Uh, David Ray, maybe you can lead the chant, and then there'll be announcements and a time for informal hanging out. So, David Ray, go ahead with the closing Thank chant. Um, I will share the screen and uh, get down to the. So we'll we'll start with the repentance verse three times, and then I'll announce the chant for today. So the all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, greed hate, and delusion, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born from body, speech, and mind. I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born from body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. I post for the hall of pure bliss. By seeking appearances and sounds, one cannot truly find the way. The deep source of realization comes with constancy, bliss, self, and purity. Its purity is constant. Its bliss is myself. The two are mutually dependent, like firewood and fire. The self's bliss is not exhausted. Constant purity has no end. Deep existence is beyond forms. Wisdom illuminates the inside of the circle. Inside the circle, the self vanishes, neither existent nor non-existent, intimately conveying spiritual energy. It subtly turns the mysterious pivot. When the mysterious pivot finds opportunity to turn, the original light auspiciously appears. When the mind's conditioning has not yet sprouted, how can words and images be distinguished? Who is it that can distinguish them? 
clearly understand and know by yourself, whole and inclusive with inherent insight. It is not concerned with discriminative thought. When discriminating thought is not involved, it is like white reed flowers shining in the snow. One beam of light's gleam permeates the vastness. The gleam permeates through all directions, from the beginning not covered or concealed, catching the opportunity to emerge amid transformations it flourishes, following appropriately amid transformations, the pure bliss is unchanged, the sky encompasses it, the ocean seals it, every moment without deficiency, in the achievement without deficiency, inside and outside are interfused, all dharmas transcend their limits, all gates are wide open, through the open gates are the byways of playful wandering, Dropping off senses and sense objects is like the flowers of our gazing and listening falling away. Gazing and listening are only distant conditions of thousands of hands and eyes. The others die from being too busy, but I maintain continuity. In the wonder of continuity are no traces of subtle identifications. Within purity is bliss. Within silence is illumination. The house of silent illumination is the hall of pure bliss. Dwelling in peace and forgetting hardship, let go of adornments and become genuine. The motto for becoming genuine, nothing is gained by speaking. The goodness of Vimala Kirti enters the gate of non-duality. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the guidepost for the hall of pure bliss. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Mahaprajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Ehe Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu. The perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri. To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, Gratefully, we offer this virtue to all beings, all Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, Maha Prajna Paramita.